Las Vegas, famous, fabulous playground of the West. A wide open town that never goes to sleep. Vegas! Vegas, baby, Vegas! You're either in or you're out. Right now. My best mates are going to Las Vegas this weekend. I'm told it's incredible. Las Vegas, here we go! Pack your bags and get ready. You're going to Vegas with people who know Vegas. You're listening to Vegas Never Sleeps with Stephen Maggi. Welcome to Vegas. It's a week after Halloween, and you're probably still enjoying some leftover candy. Halloween is about more than just candy, though. This week, you'll meet Dacre Stoker, great-grandnephew of Irish author Bram Stoker, the creator of Dracula. Also today, you'll hear from your Vegas insider, Scott Robin of VitalVegas.com. Now that there's some live entertainment coming back to Vegas, we asked Scott which show should be on the top of your list. His answer, absinthe. In the second half hour, once again, Vegas Never Sleeps presents Sports Rock and Tours. On today's show, you'll meet one of America's finest sports writers, Lee Montville, who has written for Sports Illustrated and was a columnist for the Boston Globe. But first, let's meet the man who knows a thing or two about Dracula. You know, we have good friends over in Ireland, and they put us in touch with one of the coolest people. His name is Dacre Stoker. Recognize that last name? Tell us, you're like a nephew, right? Is it a grand-grand-nephew, is that right? A great-grand-nephew? Yeah, Steve. Yeah, Bram was one of seven children, and his youngest brother, George Stoker, was my great-grandfather. So that makes me the great-grand-nephew of Bram Stoker. And it's got to be cool to be connected with Bram, because Dracula is one of these characters that has gone through history, and people never get tired of it. It it doesn't seem uh, ancient, whatever. In fact, it always seems like somebody's taking kind of a new take on it. Is that fun for you? It it is. You know, we call it the reimagining of Bram's creation. Um, and, and, you know, people look at me and go, oh, what do you think of that latest movie? It's nothing like Bram's book. But I say, no, no, wait a sec. If everything was faithful to Bram's book, we'd be a little bit bored with it. <laughs> and I think there's nothing better. And same with my family members, you know, thinking that this is something that Bram Stoker created in 1897. So 123 years ago, he created something that changed the world and is reimagined. It inspires writers. Uh, screenwriters, producers, directors, people that make toys, marketing guys, they, they slap Dracula on everything. And, you know, it's in public domain, so that's all cool. But it's just this personification of the vampire. Of course, there's many, you know, vampires in, in, in myths and so on. But Bram's vampire is the one that we all identify with, especially around Halloween. I was thinking when all the Twilight stuff happened here, there was a certain excitement. And again, it all goes back to Dracula, right? I mean, that really is where all that comes from, and people just can't get enough of it. You're, you're right, and, and Twilight was a perfect example. You know, there was there was your kind of ugly, gnarly vampires for many years. You know, Bela Lugosi wasn't an ugly guy, neither was Christopher Lee. But, you know, they, they took the ugly, gnarly guy with bad breath and, and, and hairy palms that Bram created and morphed him onto the stage— and that's why we see the Lugosi as a personification, Christopher Lee, Gary Oldman. But when Twilight came along, it did something really different. It, it shot off in a whole other direction. It sort of brought the vampire to these young, attractive, you know, teenagers and young adults. And that opened up the door to, you know, a whole other genre, which was sort of this paranormal romance, 
where the vampires were, you know, trying to jump into bed with each other as much as they were trying to drink each other's blood. <laughs> well, again, it's nothing new. If you think about it, all the old Abbott and Costello thing meets Dracula. It, it just, whether it's comedy, it, and I, I guess that really speaks to really creating a character that transcends time. That, that interest in Dracula just has never wavered. And, you know, we've gone through a you know, hundred and some odd years since then. Yeah, and, and, you know, Steve, what I like to look at when, when I, you know, Kenny, touch on this subject, is that the vampire actually originated in something real. It was, it was the real concerns of people in the Middle Ages, the myths that were created to answer questions that religion could not answer at that time, and that is all these uh, contagious diseases running through different parts of the world, the plagues, uh, cholera, scarlet fever, rheumatic fever, People didn't understand how, from one person to another, these germs were passed on and then killing folks. And so religion certainly couldn't answer that question. You know, oh, it was God's way. You know, after a while, that got tired, and people wanted answers. So they kind of look at the dark side, and that is superstition. And as soon as they could get some sort of an answer, oh, now we need a ritual, okay? The ritual of staking these things into the ground came out of looking at digging up a body that they thought was some com- coming out of the ground and sucking the life out of the other guys in the village, they found the body bloated and this red stuff around their face. And they jumped to the wrong conclusion that this was a vampire coming out of the grave, drinking blood. They didn't understand biological decomposition. They didn't understand bloating. So, oh, let's keep this guy in the ground, stake him in the ground, or cut his head off. Or So all these kind of old, interesting traditions get picked up by authors who do their research, like Bram Stoker and others, and they resonate through many different generations. So this is a story you and I know, Steve, hopefully you know, yes. if this <laughs> stuff is not real. <laughs> yes. But it's based, it's based on reality, and therefore it just it's, it sits there and resonates in people's minds like, ah, maybe, just maybe people know something that I don't know. Yeah, obviously it's been turned into fiction and so forth, but it comes from that basic fear of the unknown. So we go ahead and answer ourselves, and sometimes we do it, I think, because we like kind of scaring ourselves a bit, too. We, we don't want to, we don't know how to answer it, so we'll come up with something like that. that that's it. And, and you know, the, the question probably, you know, at least in our lifetime, Steve, it'll never be answered. What really happens to our soul after our body, mortal body, dies? And that's one of these things that keeps nagging everybody. And once this whole thing of the vampirism and the immortality pop up, like, oh, well, maybe I'll, maybe I'll have a bit of that. Well, that's kind of <laughs> cool. And then you add in the sort of sexuality of it that, you know, Bela Lugosi and Christopher Lee and Gary Oldman and then all these other Draculas bring into it. They say, well, that's not a bad gig. But it's still, you know, this whole idea of after life. And I've studied these rituals in Transylvania and, and where Bram got his information. And it's all about making sure that the soul is at rest, rests at peace. And if it doesn't, for whatever reason, you're not mourning properly, there's revenge involved, or it's a cautionary tale, then that soul is going to come out in one way or another, either physically like a vampire or just sort of in the, in the mindset and set you straight like the living better, better behave better. You, otherwise, something bad's going to happen to you. Worst is... You're going to get your blood sucked and you're going to become another vampire, which may not be that bad after all. 
More with the great-grandnephew of Irish author Bram Stoker, the creator of Dracula, Dacre Stoker, in just a few moments. Time now for a visit with your Vegas insider, Scott Robin of VitalVegas.com. Do you miss seeing some of your favorite shows in Vegas? Some are back, and Scott discusses one of his very favorites. Yeah, that's right. Absinthe is a kind of a go-to show when people ask, what's the show you have to see? It's, it's not for everybody, but for the most part, everybody that goes, it's irreverent. If you sit in the first few rows, you're gonna get, they're going to poke fun at you. It's interactive uh, comedically. There's a lot of racial humor. They're unabashedly just over the top with sexism and racism and all the isms. And they really just tell you that up front is you're going to be, you know, you could be the subject of the humor. But for the most part, it's good natured and everybody's in vain. Absinthe is a great show. They now have this big, beautiful tree out front. It's got these LED lights. All the leaves on this tree are programmable. So even if you've seen Absinthe before, you should stop by, uh, get a look at that tree. Thanks, Scott. Visit VitalVegas.com every day and follow Scott on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Just a reminder, please visit our great new show, Sports Rockin' Tours, online for a podcast, a blog, and lots of new stuff on our website and on social media. You just go to SportsRacks.com, R-A-C-X.com, on the web, like us on Facebook, and follow us on Twitter. You're listening to Vegas Never Sleeps with Stephen Maggi. I'm John Katsalamitis of the Las Vegas Review Journal on page 3A every day and online all the time. You're listening to Vegas Never Sleeps with Stephen Maggi. Hi, this is Dr. Annette of The Dr. Annette Show. We've been talking today about COVID-19 and steps you can take to possibly prevent or mitigate infection. Silver and zinc have been used for centuries as disinfectants and as antimicrobials. We're offering you this special discount to make it easier and more affordable to get these essential silver and zinc liquid mineral supplements. Visit our website at www.elementalresearchinc.com and use promo code VEGAS20 to get 20% off silver and zinc products. Once again, that's www.elementalresearchinc.com and use promo code VEGAS20 to get 20% off silver and zinc products, professional line not included. We are all in this together and we can get through this. Learn more at elementalresearchinc.com and use the promo code VEGAS20. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. To reemerge stronger and safer than ever, ask yourself these crucial questions. Should all restaurants, retailers, and venues have new safety and sanitation procedures in place? As a business owner, how can you assure your valued guests that proper protocols are being followed? How can you give your guests confidence knowing that you've prioritized their health and safety? Introducing VirusSafe Pro, a revolutionary mobile technology software that provides checklists, reminders, and confirmations to help your team perform health and safety measures right on schedule. It allows you to close the information gap in the workplace by giving your employees a dedicated source of credible instructions in a timely manner, right from their mobile devices. Validate compliance with health and wellness standards, provide regular safety and health messaging, and confirm that approved protocols have been performed all in real time and an easy-to-read dashboard. Tracking and verifying health and safety procedures in your business has never been more important. To learn more about how VirusSafe Pro can help you reopen, visit VirusSafePro.com.
Now, let's return to Vegas Never Sleeps with Stephen Maggi. You are listening to Dacre Stoker, the great-grand-nephew of Irish author Bram Stoker, the creator of Dracula. Well, let's talk a lot about that because you do have some books. You can find them on the, all over the web and so forth. And you have your own website too, don't you, as I recall? I, I do. It's D- DacreStoker.com. It tells about me and things I do, but I actually sell the books at BramStokerEstate.com. Um, the, the prequel to Dracula uh, has came out a couple of years ago. It, it came out to great reviews and it was the number one horror hardcover in all of the U.K. And that was written with J.D. Barker. And that's Bram's life. Somewhat fictionalized, writing Dracula as a warning to the world that Dracula was real. And yeah. then I wrote a sequel, a continuation to Dracula with Ian Holt uh, quite a few years ago, and that's done very well. It's actually an international bestseller called Dracula the Undead, yeah. um, which picks up the action. If you remember, the novel Dracula ends in a very strange way. Dracula is knifed, staked in the heart with a knife, not a wooden stake, and yet he crumbles into dust. So is he really gone? (laughs) Is he really gone? And so Ian and I thought, well, let's play with this as authors do. What if? Well, you did get great reviews on both books, and I think that's got to be important to you because having that same last name and so forth, a little extra responsibility. It's not just, hey, I got an idea. I want to pick up on this theme. Uh, You've got the family heritage in your hands there. You're right. You know, I have to admit, the name Stoker does open doors when I want to talk to publishers or, or, you know, people who want to turn it into a movie. But at the same time, there's big shoes to fill because if the product isn't any good, then they're just going to laugh at you and say, you're trying to ride the coattails. And, you know, I've had some success. I'm actually doing some cool stuff nowadays. I'm actually turning some of Bram Stoker's graphic novels, excuse me, his short stories into graphic novels. Uh, I found a guy, Chris McCauley, an Irish guy, and an artist, Jessica Martin, in the in the UK, and we're collaborating together along with Andrews Publishing in the next two years to bring six of these stories back to life and a couple of our own original stories. One in particular, I know Bram Stoker was told by his mother when he was ill, and, it, and it's a story of her surviving a cholera epidemic, a pandemic, just like what's, what's going on now, in 1832, and all nobody knew how it was was caused. Nobody knew how it was, has passed on. People were dying. They were being buried prematurely because of misdiagnosis. And that story, the Charlotte Stoker Collar story, is going to be is going to come out in the next year in a graphic novel. And it's part of the basis for Bram's understanding and his motivation for writing Dracula. That is so cool. We're going to be on top of that. In fact, we'll get you on again to talk about that when that's released. That's going to be really exciting. Last question. I wanted to ask you, now you and your wife uh, live in South Carolina. We're happy to have you here in the States. You come from Canada and so forth. And, of course, Bram's back from Ireland. But you manage your job, one of your jobs, besides writing, is managing the Bram Stoker estate. What's that like? Because I'm thinking, on the one hand, there's all this interest in there. But on the other hand, I read something where you said, hey, we're not making, we're not rich off this thing. Don't don't get the wrong idea. You know, it's it's something we love doing it. But it, but it's not like you're you're sitting on top of a gold mine on this. No, no, you're right. And, and I'm glad you brought that up, because whenever I sort of initiate a project on behalf of the Bram Stoker estate, um, you got to realize all the money that was made on Dracula, Dracula films, all that stuff. That's long gone, and I'm only an indirect descendant. So it actually went to Bram's widow, 
and then his son, and then the surviving people in his branch of the family. And there are some great grandsons still alive, but they're they're not you know really into the literary thing as much. They they've asked me and my wife to help manage it to try to protect Bram's uh, his image, his intellectual property. We try to you know find deals and license things like you know like things like board games or we actually did a um, an iPad family version of the of, of the book Dracula. Uh, we've got out a Bram Stoker bobblehead, you know, a nice writing pen. So we're trying to we try to license things that are uh, appropriate for for what you would expect um, a Bram Stoker to be associated with. No, I agree with you, and I think you want to do that too because you want to have put people to know there's a place to go where you can find the original thing. Because I would think there's always that problem that you get on these type of things where somebody takes a basic concept and by the time years pass, decades pass, uh, it's a completely different figure than what was originally entailed. That, that's, that's a great point. And I like to focus folks back to the BramStokerEstate.com website because they say, here's the truth. Here are the details we know. Here's the you know, certain biographies have got it right. Certain biographies got it wrong. Here's here's from the horse's mouth. And if you want actual information, we spend a lot of time helping people who who are putting on documentaries about horror or or Bram himself or Dracula's. And and we, we put you know we try to contribute to promote his legacy, protect his legacy, and keep him in the forefront of people's minds, especially around Halloween. Absolutely. Let's give them that website one more time, please. Yes, it is bramstokerestate.com. You will check that out. And, of course, don't forget to go to ireland.com, a great site. And they brought us uh, Dacre today. Dacre, thank you so much. Really enjoyed chatting with you. Best of luck. Well, I, I've got to say one more quick thing because i got to plug the Irish. I mean, they have done a wonderful thing. So remember, Ireland, home of Halloween, there was definitely a connection between Bram Stoker, the stories that – you know, are typical of this time of the year in Ireland, all the great superstitions of their own, the banshees, the fairies, the changelings, all that stuff influenced Bram as a little kid. And that, you know, gave him this fertile, dark sense of imagination as he you know, got, went on his life and later on wrote Dracula. Yeah, so maybe a visit to your website and then coupled with an eventual trip to Ireland, people can go out and see where he lived and so forth and kind of get a feel for that whole, because you're right, and I'm glad you brought that up. It really was a great place. I mean, it inspired him for this great writing. It, it, and it, listen, Dublin was the city, the UNESCO city of literature. He, he follows a long line of very famous authors and, um, you know, I'm really happy that he's, he's being um, honored this time of the year. There's a wonderful Bram Stoker Festival that, that runs at, around Halloween in Dublin. I think it's been eight years now. I've been over the last few years giving my talks there. But it shows that the city gets so inspired by, by literature, you know, Joyce and Yeats and Jonathan Swift. But now also Bram Stoker joins those ranks. And it's, and it's a fun family kind of um, va- uh, vacation place to go and see the Bram Stoker Festival, and when I get there, I love to you know go to the, the the Marshes Library to see where Bram actually studied Trinity College, where he went to school, Dublin Writers Museum, and there's a wonderful uh, Castle Dracula, which is sort of an amusement uh, horror house, but with a real historical twist outside the town in Clontarf, right across the, the, the street where Bram Stoker was born and spent the first few years of his life. Well, thank you, Dick. I really appreciate it. Thanks for coming on today. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Take care.
Remember, all of our shows are archived on our website, VegasNeverSleeps.com. You can also listen on SoundCloud, iTunes, and more. Coming up, Vegas Never Sleeps presents Sports Rock and Tours. Today's conversation features one of the country's finest sports writers, Lee Montville. We are really excited about Sports Rock and Tours. You've been hearing about it for the last couple of months on Vegas Never Sleeps, and now we're expanding. Soon we'll add an additional hour, and we've got a great new website too. Just go to SportsRacks, that's R-A-C-X dot com, on the web, like us on Facebook, and follow us on Twitter. That's Sports Rock and Tours, which is next. In the meantime, a reminder, Vegas Never Sleeps. Vegas, here we go! They were there when history was made. One second left in the game. Do you believe in miracles? Yes! Inside the 20. Touchdown! A Rackham Tour is a storyteller. Welcome to the Sports Rackham Tour. And with two out, you talk about a roll of the dice. This is it. Lewis gets it to LeBron for three for the win. Yes! The Sports Tours dusts off the great American art of storytelling from the players, coaches, media, the people who were there. Smith corks one in the right down the line. It may go. Go crazy, folks. Go crazy. It's a home run. Go crazy. Now, here's Stephen Maggi. Welcome to Sports Rock and Tours, a show that presents the observations, recollections, and memories of a select group of storytellers who represent the past half century or so of American sports. In the world of sports journalism in the 20th century, there was no higher aspiration than writing for Sports Illustrated. Lee Montville did not only that, but also wrote some of the finest sports books available on legendary figures in the world of sports, like Babe Ruth, Ted Williams, and even Evil Knievel. Have you ever been part of an all-star team? You know, just a great organization where you go, my God, that was a great group. We got somebody on from the world of sports that, first of all, is a great writer himself, Lee Montville, but also worked for 21 years at the Boston Globe. Really, an all-star team of great sports writers, including Peter Gammons, Bob Ryan, Will McDonough, Dan Shaughnessy. Lee what was it like? I mean, you guys are all so good. Was it was it kind of a competitive feel, or did you kind of build off each other? It's just such a great group of riders. Not so competitive in that that everybody seemed to have a niche, you know? I mean, uh, Gammons was, was the bard of baseball, and Ryan was basketball. And I was a columnist with a guy named Ray Fitzgerald, who, who was a terrific guy, a funny guy, um, who died real young at 53. And Will McDonough kind of went his own way, kind of with whisper and scoops and things. And Bud Collins was on television, and, you know, he had tennis. Leslie Visser was around, and uh, it was quite a noisy place to work. I forgot about Collins, and we've we've spoken with Leslie Visser. She's wonderful. Uh, you kind of like build off each other, and because you all had kind of your little special niches, it just puts that team together. Yeah, it just kind of evolved. Um there was a guy named Ernie Roberts was the sports editor, and he brought Ray Fitzgerald and myself in, and then uh, 
Gammons and Ryan came like about a year later. They were both interns, and uh, they hired them out of being interns. I, I had come, I, I'd worked for three years in New Haven, Connecticut, and they, they put it all together, and, and, and it was Time Magazine was going to have a big story on, on the Boston Globe, the greatest sports section in the world, you know? It was all set to run, and the presses had started, and a guy shot the Pope over, <sighs> over in the Vatican. A guy shot the Pope, and they stopped everything, and they put in a story about the guy shooting the Pope where, where the Globe Sports Department was supposed to be uh, lionized. And because it had run... In, in a few thousand magazines, they, they couldn't go back and, you know, put it in the next week or something. So it, it was a short-lived celebrity for the, the Boston Globe. <laughs> well, you Okay, so you started the Globe in 68, and that's a big year because 67, I remember that as a kid. That was a big deal with the, the Red Sox in that incredible season. Uh, and, you know, they went from ninth to first, what have you. Was that kind of an exciting time to get back into it because you know, baseball had been down for a long time in Boston. Yeah, I, I, I have a story about the 1967 season. Um, I, I was working in New Haven, Connecticut, and uh, I was always a Red Sox fan. And, and I pleaded with my boss to let me go to opening day at Fenway Park to cover to cover the game, you know. And uh, he said, okay, you can go up you can take the train up to Boston, and you can go and cover the game, but you can't stay overnight or anything like that. You got to get on the train and come back. And I said, "Sure, great." So I take the train up, and I I had my little mattress sport coat, and I had my little typewriter, and I, I jumped off the train, and I got in a cab, and I said, "Take me to Fenway Park, my my good man." And the guy said, "Why are you going there?" And I said. Uh, I'm a sports writer, and I'm going to cover opening day. And he said, it's been postponed. Cold weather. And it, it, it wasn't that cold at all. It was like, I don't know, like 40 degrees? Yeah. <laughs> and uh, so I didn't know what to do. And and, and, and I, I said, well, take me over there anyway. And, and uh, I, I wound up, you know, going in the locker room. I didn't know anybody. Everybody had left. And uh, I, I, I wandered around and summoned up my courage to talk to, like, Reggie Smith and to Dick Williams, who was the manager. He was very nice. And uh, I got some notes, and I, I didn't know that there was, like, a press room where you go to write or any of that stuff. So I went to a bar next door. I, I started typing in the bar. Uh, there were like three guys watching Hawaii Five O or something, you know, at the bar. And I was clacking away, and uh, then I phoned in my story and got on the train and came home. I was drinking beers as I was writing, you know. So it, it, it got a little looser at the end than it was at the beginning, I think, of that story. You wrote a great book about that whole Red Sox thing, because 20 years of Really, a lot of bad baseball and then frustration, no, bad dreams, horrible things happening in the 70s and the and the, the 80s. In that book, Why Not Us, there was almost a feel. Did that almost make the team, in a weird sort of way, more attractive? Because, you know, I can stick through this. I'm a real fan, you know, and even build it up even more. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, I, I, I knew um, that that. As soon as they won, as soon as they won the thing in 2004, that um, that it was all going to be different with following the Red Sox. They would be just another team, 
you know, until there. And it's the same thing happened with the Cubs when they won it, too. It, it, it was like a crusade every year, you know. You'd, you'd get your hopes up in the crusade, and then the ball would go through Buckner's legs or something would happen, or, yeah. you, you know, uh, Bucky Dent would hit that home run, and they're all just bad stuff. And it, it, it all grew on itself, and, and it was like like a, a legend, like King Arthur in his court or something, you know. It was... Uh, it was it was kind of neat to be part of that, and that's why that's why like a lot of um, writers and literati kind of people they all love the Red Sox because it was such a tragic show, and once they won the thing in two thousand four, it's been just you know they're just another team trying to win, trying to lose. The magic left after that, and I knew it was going to leave. It, it, you know you you you'd, you'd never have. People go into graveyards to to go put flowers in a Red Sox pennant on Dad's grave and all that stuff. If yeah. if, if you hadn't had that big history. Yeah, you're right. I remember James Taylor writing that song about his grandmother wanting to live to see this. But, you know, 2004, if you're going to be bad, or not bad, but just not be able to win the big one for that time, what a way to win it, huh? Down three games to none. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, Dave Roberts stealing the, you know, stealing the base. And it all just tumbled right. As, as soon as they won that game, you looked the way the pitching matchups went and everything, and you said, they've got a chance to win this thing. It, it was it was kind of funny when, when it all, it was like turning the numbers on the safe, you know? And then all of a sudden, there was just this last number you had to turn. And it, it involved the last three games, but, but you thought they could do it. Yeah, and the, you know, the interesting part was, too, when you think of the World Series that year, that was the first time where I thought, oh, I think they're going to win it, because you just couldn't have done that to the Yankees. It was something about that. that, And sure yeah. enough, they won fairly easily. Yeah, no, I mean, it was all beating the Yankees. and They just mowed down the Cardinals. They didn't care. Um, so it was it was a great thing to see. I mean, it was, it was a great thing to be alive for, you know? I mean, if you'd been around here for all those years, because a lot of people hadn't been alive for that. My father was never alive for the Red Sox to win the whole thing. We'll be back with one of America's finest sports writers, Lee Montville, in just a moment. Hey, we're excited. In December, we're going to add an additional hour of Sports Rock and Tours, and we have a new website that you can visit today. Go to sportsracks.com, that's R-A-C-X, on the web, like us on Facebook, and follow us on Twitter. You're listening to Sports Rock and Tours with Stephen Maggi. He gets him swinging, and for the first time this year, he's got that slider really working. Four no-hit innings for the kid, and no score. Okay, Sean, we need to talk about our training budget. We're spending almost $1,500 per employee each year. What's the plan? Well, ma'am, 42% of companies are saying that e-learning has led to an increase in revenue. What does that do about the travel expense? E-learning allows employees to learn wherever they are. Then we need to consider the time away from production. I heard that e-learning takes up to 60% less employee time than traditional classroom training. Perfect. Let's find a curriculum company, a development company, a learning management software company. Actually, Epsilon XR specializes in end-to-end learning solutions with tools such as instructor-led training, online classrooms, simulations, virtual and augmented reality, and curriculum development. Get Epsilon XR on the phone. 
Epsilon XR creates immersive learning environments that engage with your learner, resulting in improved information retention, which leads to better performance and ultimately an increase in revenue. Learn more at elearning.epsilonxr.com. Welcome back to Sports Rock and Tours. You are listening to Lee Montville, who has written for Sports Illustrated, was a columnist for the Boston Globe, and author of several great books. Across the country, I think there was a feeling that, hey, that's great. These people, the same way they felt about Chicago, but like you say, then people move on. That that little fun fact is gone. Yeah, yeah. Strange, is it? Well, now let's talk about another Boston team, the Celtics. That was no problem winning there. It was incredible for a while with Red Arbuck and uh, Bill Russell. It was unbelievable. <laughs> what, what was Russell like? Because he was an interesting character. I got to meet him a little bit when he was in Sacramento, and I, I actually kind of like him. I mean, he was he was such a great player, but he's an interesting guy. Yeah, I'm writing a book about that now. As a matter of fact, in in 1969. I was working at the Globe, and I had never, I had never covered like the bigger stuff. You know, I, I'd just been there a year, and it, it came to pass that I, I covered the NBA Finals, the, the, the well, the playoffs for the whole playoffs, but the NBA Finals between the Celtics and the Lakers, and and it was quite a thing. I had never been to California; I'd never seen a palm tree, and Russell was the player coach, so I had to deal with Russell every day, and. Uh, you know, I I was a young guy that he couldn't he couldn't really be involved with me. You know, he was involved with with older guys. You know, who he knew and recognized. Right. But I was this young guy, and like I'd say, one out of three times he, he would kind of respond to me a little bit. Well, he's. Uh, I think you guys you guys won out actually. Cause I I think as as great as Havlicek and Arbeck was in terms of interest in somebody that. Bill Russell was just a really interesting guy, and I, I would think that that w- must have been really exciting for some people because he was a guy that didn't yeah. get some yeah. of that type of attention. Well, and they're pretty good, his columns, you know. I mean, he kind of lays it out what happened in the game, and there were ups and downs in that series, and uh, and he, he was pretty good. It's, it must be exciting because they try to take on these great personalities and there's so much to them and to try to pull a little something different out of them. Is that kind of the challenge in that kind of thing to kind of maybe bring up a part that we don't know about them? They're each kind of different challenges, you know. I mean, uh, like Ted Williams, you, you could go and talk to people that, that played with Ted and Ted was still alive halfway through the book that I was writing. But Babe Ruth was more like a, like a college term paper kind of thing, you know, <laughs> yeah. reading stuff and... and trying to figure out stuff, going to the Baseball Hall of Fame and looking stuff up. And I remember that book, though. That was a great book because all I knew about Ruth was the myth part, you know, or, or him talking to little kids and, of course, his great statistics. I thought you brought him out, which was really kind of cool because he probably, in my mind, he may not be the greatest player of all time, but he's probably the most important player ever to play baseball. I, I've thought all along that he was a much smarter guy than um, – and the, the the press made him out to be, you know, they they like to make him out to be this big um, drunken, overeating kind of, I don't know, slob kind of guy. But I I think he was on the money with a lot of stuff. He he was the first athlete to have his own personal trainer. He had a business manager uh, agent when nobody had business manager agents. You know, I mean, he might not have known how to invest his money on Wall Street, but he knew enough to find 
smart people to do things for him. Do you think you would have been a good manager? Probably not. You know, I, 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 I mean, for for all the thing, I thought he was a smarter guy. I, I think his personal life would have would have been tough. You know, to 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 put it all together. I think Ted Williams. Uh, you know, he was a manager, and and he he paid attention for the first year, but after that, he kind of kind of lost interest in it. And I think that's that's a, a tough thing. It's tough for a great athlete to coach other people, you know? Yeah. So is that, that that's interesting. So Frank Robinson kind of struggled with that, too. I remember that. So is that why a guy like Billy Martin, who was good, but, but he wasn't a great player, could always seem to manage well no matter where he went? Even he'd self-destruct, but that was a different issue. Yeah. I mean, Ted, Ted would say, you know, you, you got to get a good pitch to hit. You got to get the count to, to where the guy has to pitch it to you, you know? And, and he's got to throw the fastball. And he would just preach that and preach that. And one player he had at Texas, I forget who it was, said, I'd be up there and, you know, the count would be like three and one or something like that. And I could hear Ted and, and I would swing and I would ball it off and I would hear Ted just cursing and, you know, <laughs> upset. How could you not hit that pitch? And I couldn't do it because I wasn't Ted Williams. Yep, and that was sort of the Frank Robinson. One time we talked briefly, and he admitted that he goes, "Part of the problem is, is like, I think of him in terms of what I would do. Well, some of these people just don't have that skill set." Yeah, yeah. I'm a bad editor. You know, if you give me a story and you say, you know, can you edit this? I mean, what I wind up doing is kind of rewriting it the way I would write it. You know, yeah, rather than bring it out the way you wrote it, you know? And I, I think that's a tough thing to do. To, that, that's a gift to be able to to bring out other people's abilities. I want to talk about another franchise. You know, we talked about the Celtics and the Red Sox. The Patriots, which have been an interesting uh, organization, you know, started in the AFL. You've seen a lot of different ownership. What was that like? Because I know back in the day with uh, the Sullivan family, there, there were times where they were afraid they were going to lose the franchise. Yeah, he he came in as like a like a poor relation when they founded the AFL, um, you know, raised some money and he was always he was always walking the tightrope, kind of fall into a big vat of red ink at any minute, and nothing seemed to turn out right for him. On the other hand, when Bob Kraft eventually came. Everything has turned out right for him. Yeah, it just seems like everything fits right now. And, of course, a big part of that is Belichick, I guess. Yeah, but, well, you know, I mean, it's an interesting thing that what's going to happen with this season, you know, the Belichick-Brady thing. You know, was it Brady or was it Belichick? Brady or Bel- I, myself, am a Brady guy. Well, last question is about your books. You write about these great individuals. We already talked about Ruth and Williams. You wrote about Muhammad Ali, Dale Earnhardt. But you, you've gotten into a couple of interesting people. One is Evil Knievel, and I understand that uh, he's not the greatest guy to deal with. Uh, why is that? No, I mean, he he, um, he was the all-time narcissist, you know. He was the all-time me, me, me guy. In business, he was a tough guy. and personal relationships, you know, he wound up romancing all of his friends' wives. And he was just a bad, bad guy. You know, and it's interesting, you know, on one hand you think, well, you got to be a self-promoter doing what he did, but it sounds like he went past that. Uh, maybe those are the type of guys, only somebody with that kind of personality could do those kind of weird things that he used to do, those spectacles. Well, yeah, I mean, how bad do you want to become famous, you know? I mean, that's, that's the question about his life, and he wanted it bad enough that he would drive a motorcycle off a ramp and 
sometimes get over to the other side, but a lot of times not get to the other side and just get all broken up. And he became famous for just getting all broken up. You know, the, that, yeah. that Caesar's Palace thing is what made his whole career where he broke all kinds of bones. And uh, he, he had no... The thing about him was you, you would think that if you were doing that, you would figure out, like, all the geometry, the physics, and all the stuff, you know, that were involved. And But he, he just did it by the seat of his pants. He, he would just um, say, well, i, I got to be doing, you know, 60 miles an hour when I hit the ramp. And, and he'd fall short. And he'd say, well, i got to be doing 65 miles an hour when I hit the ramp. And then he'd shoot over the last car and get killed. You know, I mean, yeah. he, he just, um, I mean, all these guys that have come come since him, including his son, I mean, they've all figured out, you know, down to down to the, the, the last specification how, how to do it. And then I think part of his career, with all that in mind, then his last thing, that Snake River jump, I think a lot of people that paid money to see that on pay-per-view were like, okay, he's literally jumped the shark. <laughs> because, uh, oh, yeah, yeah. But he kind of came back from that. He, he went over to London and, and, you know, had a big thing at Wembley Arena and, and he made some money after that, and then he went to Kings Island in Cincinnati and kind of finished it off there. Well, I got to tell you, Lee, you are truly a sports rock and tour. I've had a blast. I feel like uh, I know a lot about Boston sports and uh, sports in general. We'd love to have you on again because I know we didn't even get into the Bruins and stuff, and I'd like to talk with you a little about that. But uh, thank you so much for being with us today. Really appreciate it. Well, thank you. A lot of fun. Don't forget to visit sportsracks.com. That's R-A-C-X, home of our podcast, a blog, and lots of new stuff. And please follow us on all social media platforms, including Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Thanks for listening today. This is Stephen Manchie. What if every dollar you invested into your training program turned into $30 of revenue? What if your learning program was so engaging that your employees looked forward to annual trainings? And what if you could monitor the success and effectiveness of your curriculum with quantifiable metrics? Go to training.epsilonxr.com. E-learning has made each of these scenarios possible, utilizing tools such as virtual and augmented reality, simulations, and online instructor-led training provides a safe environment for employees to learn at their own pace. Go to training.epsilonxr.com. Here at Epsilon XR, we have 50 years of experience in creating powerful and effective training programs. We combine proven training methods with cutting-edge technology to create immersive training experiences. Are you ready to take your training program to the next level? Go to training.epsilonxr.com. Training.epsilonxr.com.